So you could be a doc or a nurse and in a civilian practice, and you can make a contribution to humanity. There's no doubt about it. But being a military doctor or a military health professional of various stripes, you are working in a different type of environment in which you can make tremendous contributions, not only with your skills, but as a leader, as an ambassador overseas, and support the nation because we're defending our values and we're defending our interests. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, Wardox has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome the president of the Uniformed Services University, retired Army Major General Dr. Jonathan Woodson. Dr. Woodson has a distinguished military medicine career and has deployed as a surgeon to Panama, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Kosovo, and OIF OEF. He most recently served as the Commanding General of the U.S. Army Medical Reserve Command, and prior to that, he was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. You can learn more about his bio on wardockspodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about his training as a general surgeon, vascular surgeon, internist, and critical care physician. He discusses the challenges and opportunities facing military medical education and explains some of the reasons behind the restructuring of military medicine mandated within the recent National Defense Authorization Acts. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General and current USUS President, Dr. Jonathan Woodson to WarDocs. Sir, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Dr. Woodson, you grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Tell us about growing up and what sparked your interest in medicine. So grew up in the city, the Big Apple, Brooklyn, which had its own special flavor. Was always interested in science. And my original intention was to actually be a marine biologist. I went to the only city high school that had a marine biology program, Sheepshead Bay. But while there, I attended a career day and there was a new program that was being established between City College and New York University, a six-year BSMD program, so a short track. And that caught my attention and had not thought about human medicine before that, but did some investigation, found out that, boy, that was really exciting stuff. And the program was fast-paced, which is what I liked, and was accepted into that program. So how'd you go about choosing your specialty? So again, a process of discovery, if you will. I never had anyone in my family that had been in medicine. So I had to work my way through some of those decisions. And originally I was befriended by a faculty member who was an internal medicine, an infectious disease doctor actually, and originally went down the path of internal medicine. I was accepted to the program at the Massachusetts General Hospital, the Harvard Hospital program, and had a great time there. But I quickly learned, and others informed me, that I acted more like a surgeon, whatever that meant. And I followed on after I finished internal medicine, going into general surgery, and then eventually vascular surgery. So how did you choose general surgery as your surgical specialty, and then vascular as opposed to other fields? 
Back in those days, general surgeons really were broadly trained. And then vascular surgery back in those days also was a lot of open surgery. You worked in just about every part of the body. At the Massachusetts General Hospital, we had a great experience in cardiothoracic surgery as well. So I felt like I was well-trained to handle any number of problems that could occur in the surgical domain. Right. The, the Harvard Hospital and the vascular surgery, cardiovascular program is one of the best, still one of the best in the world was then. I noticed that your training program for vascular surgery was two years. It seems like in that generation of vascular surgeons, most people I've spoken to have only trained for one year. It, can you tell me about that? The program technically was a one-year program. As I mentioned, I had short track through medical schools. I had sort of a couple of years and I had graduated from high school a year early. And as a result of what I did is I actually did two fellowships, to tell you the truth. I did one in vascular surgery and then one in what was called general surgery and critical care at that time, although critical care wasn't defined as a specialty. But all of it sort of melted together because as doing a lot of cardio during my residency and then vascular required you to do a lot of ICU work, taking care of very sick people. So it was, it, it may sound like it was disjointed, but there, there was a theme there. And so what happened is that when I finished my training, I was also eligible for the critical care boards. And that's why I eventually became boarded in internal medicine, general surgery, vascular surgery, and critical care. So it seems like you're on a rocket trajectory. You go through an accelerated program at City College in New York and New York University School of Medicine, graduate from all this medical training and the Harvard programs. How in the world did you get interested in the Army? Well, that was always in the background. So my father and my uncles had served in the Second World War and Korea, although at that time they served in a segregated force and had some interesting stories to tell about their experience. They were intensely proud of their service. They had answered the call when the nation needed to them and provided service and were intensely proud of having done that. And that rubbed off. I knew through much of my formative years that I wanted to serve. But the question was when and how, because obviously I wasn't involved in intense training programs. And the issue was to figure out a way. And so when I finished, I began to investigate ways I could serve and the reserve components appeared to be the right way. So tell us about that entry pathway in the reserves. Were you still training or had you finished and then went on to join the reserves? I had finished my general surgery training and I was a fellow when I became a reservist. And uh, at that time, I had no preconceptions of really how long I was going to be in the reserves or what I was going to do. I was going to explore sort of the experience and the options. And boy, did that turn out to be the right thing to do. I got my first in experience in terms of deployment still on a short tour down in Central America back in the 80s and was drawn to the kinds of things that a physician could do in service to the nation and in the army and also novel experiences in other countries. The issue of being there for servicemen and women who were deployed was important, but also just the experience of exploring new cultures, new different places was very, very attractive. 
any memorable experiences from that deployment to Central America? Lots of memorable moments. So first real deployment, we're at Camp Powderhorn. Remember flying down there on a military aircraft, getting off the aircraft, someone walking up to me and saying, hey, you're Dr. Woodson, you're Major Woodson. Yeah, okay. Well, there's a problem up at Powderhorn. We want you to get up there right away. And so you're not going to take the bus, but you're going to fly up there. Okay, okay, that's pretty exciting. Aircraft comes in, CH-47 comes, drops the bail gate. And some of, how could I say, the most intense looking Marines got off of that aircraft, having been out in the bush, fairly dirty, if you will, but intense looking. I said, my God, where am I going now? Jumped on the aircraft. There were only a couple of us on that, flew up there. And the pilots tell me, listen, we can't actually land in the camp because of the size of the aircraft. The CH-47 obviously has a lot more downdraft than at that time a Huey. And so they let me off about a mile away. And I'm young and inexperienced. Greet that young and stupid at the time. I decide I'm going to walk off toward the camp before the party came down to meet me. I hear this rustling in the bushes and can't figure out what's going on. But realized that there were, how can I say, packs of dogs out there that had reverted to a more feral state, if you will. And that was my first introduction to understanding you have to understand how to protect yourself in foreign environments and deployed situations. So we were educated rapidly. We ran very fast. <laughs> but uh, that was the first but there was a lot of learning experiences working on those uh, medical readiness exercises, the med, med reds introduced uh, me to delivering different type of medicine, broadened my skills. I assisted probably on, that was the last time I assisted on a live delivery as one very pregnant woman came up to the camp and was ready to give birth and we took care of what was needed. So lots of great memories. So you're trained in internal medicine, general surgery, vascular surgery, and critical care. When, when you were on this deployment, which specialty were you filling the role as? Well, I think in some ways, all of them, they, they obviously needed a surgeon, but in those deployed environments, there are very few resources to include human resources. So everybody picks up some slack and doing sick call and the like. I had been fortunate enough that when I took my first staff job, I could use my broad-based skills at that time. So truth be known that through a great deal of my career, I also did trauma as part of the faculty rotation at Boston University Medical Center and what used to be known as the Boston City Hospital. So I was deeply involved in that service and did a fair amount of the vascular trauma during my career. So I, I could feel, feel a few different roles, but it was that sense of camaraderie, of working in that small team, of getting the job done, of being there for not only servicemen and women, but being, in a sense, an ambassador for the U.S. as we did these medical readiness events around Central America which really proved to be an important aspect of my professional growth. Let's fast forward a little bit to 1991, and we get to Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. You're assigned to a reserve field hospital and gets deployed to the Middle East. Tell us a little bit about your role and your memories from that experience. 
Yeah, actually, that was an interesting experience. And ultimately, I was assigned to an active duty unit, the 86 to back. But in the nature of mobilizations back then, short notice, uh, things are happening, they're being mobilized. We get ready, we inform the family, which was obviously a new experience for them as well. Originally signed to the 2290th Youth Hospital which was the backfill for Walter Reed. And that was going to be good because Walter Reed was also the vascular surgery center for the military. But shortly after getting there, we were informed that some of us would have to go overseas. And I was part of that crew that went from Walter Reed and reassigned to the 86th back hospital and eventually went overseas for a Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Now, were you able to see any casualties or injuries or do any clinical cases while you were with the 86th? Well, that was a fast-moving war. And actually, uh, what happened there was that some of us were actually put on these provisional forward surgical teams, although I'm not sure that was the term that was actually used. The doctrine, of course, for that kind of field unit had not been written, but obviously the planners knew that the situation was going to evolve rapidly. It was about a 96-hour war. So the care we rendered actually was for the POWs that had been injured and been out there for a long while. And there was a, a flurry of some casualties that came through the hospital. And then all of the operations really began to wind down uh, shortly after that uh, because of the fast pace of the events. You mentioned that you had spent a lot of your career working in Boston in the private practice, but were also in the reserves. When you were part of the 339th Combat Support Hospital, how did that work, you being in university setting and then also being in the reserves? Yeah, so I was in academic practice at the Boston University, a professor there. And obviously, there are demands in terms of what you are required and have to do to advance in terms of professorship status, publications. And so we had a great team there. I had a great mentor, and he realized the value of service. So that made it a little bit easier. But clearly, here as a reservist, you were juggling a number of how can you say different careers and different aspects of your life. You have your practice and you have your reserve duties. And that was with the 399th Combat Support Hospital. And you've got your home, you're developing your family, the kids are growing and need your attention. So it's a finesse job. There's no doubt about it. You've got to figure out ways each of those aspects of your life, but get their due. One thing I used to do is try and make it invisible to the family when I was away. And if I, if I would go in and round early, come back, and if the kids had a game on a Saturday, make sure I was there for them on a Saturday. Or in, a, in the town we lived in, we had this small ski slope. So I'd get, I'd get home, my wife would feed the kids, get them dressed, and we'd go up to the ski slope and teach them how to ski. You, you make those adjustments and uh, try and balance things out. But it uh, requires some effort and you need a supportive spouse, obviously. When we talk about 2001, a lot of people immediately think of 9-11, but most people don't remember that the Army was also involved in Kosovo and you were deployed with Task Force Medical Falcon 4 with the 30th Medical Brigade in 2001 in Kosovo. What was your role there? What was the army doing in Kosovo? And what was the medical plan? So obviously, 
Through the late 90s, the Balkans was a hot spot. There were activities going on in Kosovo and other areas that were under UN auspices. When I was there, under what was the fourth increment, the Test Force Med Falcon 4, we had responsibilities, obviously, for running the Role 3 medical facility at Camp Bonsteel and supporting the general theater. That, again, was a, a great experience, learning experience, because we, we, we were working closely with international partners. And in fact, Task Force Med Falcon 4 was charged with the responsibility of rolling other international partners into our hospital. And we learned a lot about how to deal, actually how to communicate with allies, because they have different strategies for employing health providers of different stripes. And that probably was one of the early experiences in understanding how to work with international allies closely. So I was a senior surgeon for test, the test force for Met Falcon 4, and I also sort of doubled as a, a senior flight surgeon for the theater while I was there because I was a flight surgeon qualified. So you've now had two experiences, one in Desert Storm, Desert Shield in 91, and then Kosovo in 2001. You find yourself in 2003 supporting Operation Iraqi Freedom with the 865th Combat Support Hospital. Tell us about that deployment and what you had learned from those previous two deployments that helped you on that one. Yeah, that's a great question, but I have to back up almost to 2001 again, because I had just come back from Kosovo, reintegrated into my practice when 9-11 happened. And at that time, I was also doing some work for the disaster medical assistance teams as well. And we were called down to ground zero on 9-11. I remember that day well, as many others do. I had just come out of the operating room from doing and carotid endarterectomy and all eyes were glued to the television in the ICU where I was taking the patient for recovery. And soon thereafter, my pager went off saying that we needed to respond to 9-11. Around that time too, I, I had been in between reserve jobs and attended as the first army officer the Air Force Critical Care Aeromedical Transport Team training. I was always looking for sort of new experiences and new training opportunities and has successfully completed that course. The reason I tell you that, because now if you fast forward to OIF-1, I was called up to take over a hospital that was in theater, struggling a little bit with trying to improve its readiness for combat operations and, and trauma. And when I got there, of course, at that time, the theater was very immature. And you may recall that the original war plans called for a northern route and a southern route and certain political reason, the northern route was cut off. And so that meant much of the logistics had to come through the Southern route, and that limited the number of medical assets that were going to get into the theater, certainly by the time the war began. So we were there. It was really the only fully operational hospital on day one of the war. There were other facilities, other hospitals, combat support hospitals that were ready to go north immediately as the troops crossed the burn. But we had to be ready to take the casualties on through the first week of, of the war. It was the experience of having been on the CCAT team that when I was working with the commanding general in theater uh, for medical, we talked about the need to get CCAT teams in there to keep 
our back door open because we realized that we could be compromised by the number of casualties if that eventuality occurred and we needed a mechanism for ensuring that we could keep the back door open and therefore remain operational. So it was a combination of those early experiences that gave me, I think, a lot of confidence to work as a senior leader in that theater to solve problems, basically. And that's one other aspect of these deployments is the need to be a solution-based leader to really assess the situation, come up with courses of action, make the recommendations to senior leaders, and then execute the plan. It was during that deployment also that we had our experiences with prisoners of war, repatriating those individuals. And again, incredible experiences just taking care of the service members who had been injured as a consequence of the war. What kind of injuries were you seeing early in the war in the immature theater when medical personnel were, were arriving? They really hadn't seen active wartime service. How did you feel that they were prepared to do what they were asked to do? Well, I think that was one reason I was asked to go there is because we needed to retool some of our procedures and reassess some of the capabilities of our providers who deliver care and generally upgrade our understanding about how to run a trauma system. It was at that time, actually, John Holcomb, which may be a name you're familiar with, actually came through the theater as uh, Surgeon General Jim Peake's subject matter expert to think about how, in fact, we should develop a more sophisticated trauma system. But having said that, it was a really an issue of assessing what was going on, what the needs were. We hadn't really even established a more sophisticated medical evacuation system at that point and making suggestions for how we might improve that. And then again, we borrowed on our experience of having been CCAT trained and our experience as a flight surgeon to influence some of the decisions that were made in regards to that. But we saw a combination of rather serious conditions the IEDs were first coming on board at that time. So we, we took care of some severely injured servicemen who had suffered the consequences of IED, traumatic limb am amputations, traumatic brain injury, the blast effects on lungs, bowel. Uh, we saw some routine things. Like uh, one of the first operations I did uh, at the beginning of the war was uh, to take out an appendix on uh, actually a, a company uh, commander uh, who was uh, beside himself that he couldn't go forward with the troops for the develop the acute appendicitis. So those are the kinds of things that you see. Um, we diagnose some new cancers in individuals. So you really, when you're in the deployed environment, uh, you see a spectrum of uh, medical and surgical issues, some of which are, are going to be found in sort of routine uh, populations and others that are going to be particular to the wartime environment and a consequence of kinetic war. You've got to be prepared to support your fellow soldiers and your fellow professionals as they make that transition from a more conventional CONUS-based practice to a wartime setting. That change in mindset, that change in organizational design, that change in requirements for employment of their skills. These are all part of the experience. Your longevity at this point, even though it seems early in your career, is something that reminds me of it. I just recently returned from a deployment to Iraq. And one of the things that I noticed while I was there at the Roll 3 is that the reservists who were present had much greater longevity from the time they had finished 
their training than I had. So we did a, a sur- actually did a survey while we were there and the active duty people had been in out of their training for 10 years, but the reservists were between 15 and 16 years. And so they had much more experience. And it turned out the nurse surgeon had actually been at the same place in 2008, which really struck me as here he was 14 years later. You found yourself in 2006 as a reserve consultant to the Surgeon General. How did that play out as far as you having to advise the Surgeon General in regards to the reserve physicians and surgeons that you were advocating for? Yeah, so I enjoyed that position. General Schoomaker, I believe, at the, was the Surgeon General at the time. And I think there's a special place for the reserve component consultants to help inform the decisions that are made in the force. So as you've indicated, there is a different experience base in the reserve structure. And frankly, even today, I think that we need to be able to use that talent a lot better and with a lot more flexibility in places when required. So really what I'm talking about is that we really have got to develop a strategy where we are able to assess the level of experience of various types of providers and then match them up with less experienced providers so that we create these teams where not only can you care for casualties uh, in a sophisticated way and you don't experience the so-called walker dip, but more important, you develop a, a nurturing and, inca- and educating environment so that less experienced physicians of different stripes learn from more experienced physicians and really just use that talent pool much more effectively and efficiently. From 2007 to 2011, you served in many important strategic roles in the reserves. What were some of the significant challenges? Now, this was a time after the early parts of the war had been over some high tempo was going on, you were learning some lessons. What kind of challenges were you seeing in the reserve component? And what kind of things were you able to do and accomplish? During that time, I think I had several uh, commands. And so we were mobilizing reservists on a regular basis. I think the spin cycle for reserve army surgeons was about 18 to 24 months at that time. People were coming and going. We were cross-leveling individuals to fill out units that were deploying. We were in a constant training cycle for readiness. And as a commander of a unit, then eventually when I became a brigade commander, that was my job to get units ready for deployment. And again, it's readiness in in many domains. It's not only ensuring that they had the right medical skills and, and soldiering skills, but make sure that they were the right units of action, that make sure that the units of action were validated against their mission essential task list, and then make sure that they were oriented to the theater or the operation that they were going to be assigned to. So there was a tremendous amount of activity going on during that time. And then you had to take care of the home front. We had finally learned, I think, in the reserve structure, what we needed to do for reserve component families, ensuring that the the family organizations were tight, that information flow was appropriate, that we evaluated for high-risk situations and families and ensuring that they got the support that they needed. But it was a a learning process and it was a busy time for sure. If we find ourselves in another high kinetic environment where the reserves are getting called up and we're fighting a near peer, large scale ground combat, what lessons learned from those times would you apply to do things differently when it happens the next time? 
Well, I would say, first of all, I'm not sure that we have ended. As we, let me put it this way. We, we don't, certainly don't have the high tempo of deployments, but you'd probably be surprised at the number of service that, are, uh, that we continue to mobilize on a yearly basis for support. For example, we have many of the blood teams in the reserve, and so they're still a hot commodity. Uh, we still have missions to support the deployed wounded warrior unit that launched, which has been an enduring mission to this time. So we mobilize folks for that. And there are a number of other missions that require reserve support. So the reserve is across all of the compos and across all of the services really still represent a significant part of the total force. And because of the strategies through the 90s and into the 2000s in terms of the apportionment of the certain types of forces in the reserve, they're going to be constantly needed. Now, now, to answer your question, in the future, the National Defense and Military Strategies talks about near-peer conflict and potential for large-scale combat operations. And so looking forward, it's going to be all hand, potentially all hands on deck again. And so what we've got to do is make sure that we're mentally preparing our reserve soldiers for more prolonged deployment, make sure that we upgrade their skills so that they can actually take care of casualties forward for prolonged periods, make sure that we strengthen our family support systems so that families are well taken care of and service members can concentrate on their deployed jobs. And one of the things that we've worked on at particularly Uniformed Services as an outgrowth of assessments of prior operations is ensuring that we understand how to close skills, knowledge, and abilities gap. In the civilian sector, more and more people are subspecialized, so they're a mile deep and an inch wide. And so what we've got to do is make sure that they're not only a mile deep, but they're, they have broader base skills, because as we've mentioned before, there are fewer professionals in the deployed environment to handle many of these complex problems. So going forward, those are the big issues. I think the other thing is that what we've got to do is be engaged today in the development of smart technologies that help individual providers work at the top of their license that is uh, with increased capability and in so doing will increase the capacity for care of casualties and ensure that we save lives. You mentioned that there's a, a focus on knowledge, skills, and abilities. And in the reserves, that's also an aspect, just like it is in the active duty population. Do you see that there are potentially some specialties that may be best served by being in the reserves? And I think of one, which is our common specialty, vascular surgery, where a large percentage of the patients are either Medicare or Medicaid eligible and they have other insurance options. Do you see that that would be a feasible component within the reserves? So I think that in some parts, some ways has been a natural consequence of how we've done talent management. But to be more specific and answer your question, I think we need to look at new designs and the apportionment of certain high-end specialists that high volume practices to maintain skills. And that can design can take a number of different pathways. As you probably know, on the active duty side, the services have entered many more civilian in military partnerships there, I think the issue is that we've always got to be able to measure that gap. And even in the case of reservists, use that the reserve time more effectively to get experiences to broaden their skills. But build on what 
they've got. And I think implied in your, your question is that many reservists have higher volume practices, but what we need to do is assess what additional skills they need so that they deploy with a broader set of skills to ensure that, again, we can take care of patients at a high level of reliability. The next part of your career, you served within the Department of Defense as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. Tell us a little bit about that role and what were the military medical priorities and challenges that you dealt with? Yeah, that was an interesting time in my life. And let me just state for the record, that was never on my radar screen. A series of events happened that got me selected for the position and thankfully confirmed by the Senate and the honor and the privilege of my life to fill that. Um, Having said that, it was a tremendous job. We were at the height of the wars with the focus on casualty management. My focus was on ensuring that we had a military health system that could maximally save lives, but also maximally rehabilitate soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines to reintegrate into communities and achieve their life goals and contribute as they best sort of fit. Some of these significantly injured service members wanted to stay in the service. And so we had to look at sort of occupational assessment for these service members to see where they could best fit if that was their desire. So there are a lot of challenges. Challenges were to ensure that we had the medical facilities to take care of the casualties, ensure that we had the research programs to advance care, TBI, for example, and brain injury, neuroscience, if you will. There's a wild west of medicine where we don't know as much as we should to to understand how best to optimally manage many of these and ensure that we allow or we support the healing of of patients with neurotrauma. So there were a lot of challenges at that time, not not to mention the Ebola and the Zika and some of these other things that, that came along as well. In addition to those medical problems that you encountered in that job, you also were intimately involved with the restructuring of the military health system. Why, at the time, 2016, did the military health system need to be restructured? So that is a great question. And so the easiest way to explain why we needed to reorganize and focus on a more joint system is to understand that in 2001, the budget for the military health system was about 19 billion. When I became the ESD, it was about 54 billion. And as I like to say, there were several billion dollars that were in others' account, but I kind of controlled because I wrote policy for how those dollars were spent. The important point being is that if you sum that kind of money that we were spending more on the military health system than many other countries were spending on their entire military. That's not to say that we should not have been spending, spending that money. But what it is to say is that we owed to to the American people, the Department of Defense and the service members we serve, the most effective and efficient system possible where we didn't waste any resources. If you looked up, looked at the, the military health system up until that time, we really ran three separate systems. So Army, Navy and Air Force, each had their own way of doing business. In fact, they had separate forms for even like physical examinations, recording physical examination. And yet 95% of what they did was alike. And as a surgeon, I used to say the, the standards I want to bring to any operation, let's say taking out a gallbladder, the outcomes I desire to achieve, the resources I need, the skills that we want our providers to have, 
should be no different depending on what uniform uh, they're wearing. So there was this opportunity driven by the changes in healthcare, an opportunity driven by the wars, an opportunity driven by budgetary pressures to look at a different design of the military health system to bring more efficient and effective organization. And so that gave birth to the Defense Health Agency, which was became initial operating capability on 1 October 2013 and full operating capability on 1 October 2015. With the original design to be responsible for what was originally identified as 10 enterprise support functions to drive efficiency across the medical system and to develop the strategic direction and vision. What we had planned for is that if we did it well, we could actually save money and create our own reinvestment capital as we attempted to modernize. So one of the things that that I remember is the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017, which really put into writing a lot of these changes that were going to be mandated. And, And one of the things that happened was the Defense Health Agency was going to be fully funded and they were not going away. So because I, I think sometimes the services thought, well, maybe they will go away, they won't go away, but but they're not. How does the Defense Health Agency really kind of deal with the certain service-specific issues from the various medical departments? You mentioned that it's about 95% the same, but what about those 5% that, that really needs unique attention? Yeah, no, good question. And so let me say for the record that I fully appreciate and understand service culture. So the Navy has got a long and very honorable history. Likewise, the Army, the Air Force, uh, one of the newer forces, but not so new anymore, but uh, has an honorable tradition of advancing assets that are important to defending this nation. So I get it about the service culture and The whole idea was not to make everybody a purple. Having said that, though, it was imperative to ensure that we develop a tightly integrated health system for all of the reasons I talked about to make sure that the sunk cost we had in terms of the direct care system, that is the military treatment facilities and clinics and the like, were used effectively and efficiently to ensure that we could have the flexibility of using our personnel effectively and efficiently. And understanding, again, that much of the care delivered was going to be similar no matter what uniform, what kind of installation you want. And and by the way, of course, during that health period of time, we were going to more joint facilities as well across the the nation. And uh, a couple of racks had occurred that forced more of the services together on installation. So there were many things that contributed to looking at a better design for the military health system. To your question about that 5%, that 5% is really around the margin. So the issue is the Navy needs to have people who can serve on their afloat platforms. The Blue Water Navy is what is the Navy, basically. And so the medical personnel that man those ships have got to understand ships and how to deliver care at sea and all the issues that go along with naval operations. Likewise, the folks who are in support of BCPs and the like have got to understand ground operations and Air Force medical personnel have got to understand air operations. But 95% of what they do is alike. And if you take it something even like aviation medicine, 
right? All three services have aircraft that they fly. So the physiology of how you and the important issues that are deal with pilots and taking care of what affects the human performance at altitude is really no different. So there's no specialization there. The Navy may have some special requirements for under sea meta, if you will, but in some ways that's a special adaptation in reverse, if you will, of taking care of people at altitude. I'm not belittling that kind of difference. It's just that the magnitude of it shouldn't force a design in the military health system in which three separate services go their own because ultimately it's not efficient and you can't get consensus about priorities or consensus about where you're going to put resources to support the greater good. So it was tough for the services, I know. It was a real change in thinking about how to develop a joint force. But if you look at, again, our documents, like the National Defense Strategy and then National Military Strategy, it says that we have a requirement to field a joint lethal force. And so the medical force has got to be in support of that and reflect that posture as well. Traditionally, the military health system has had a robust direct care system with hospitals at just about every camp, post station, base. And over the years, we've seen that kind of get smaller and smaller in footprint and size. Looking into a crystal ball, where do you see the network care happening, direct care happening, the amount of active duty medical providers versus the reserves? How do you look into the crystal ball and, and figure what the future should look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I want to for the purpose of this discussion, this is what's in talking now, not talking for others, senior folks in the system. But here's here's how I would answer that is that number one, we've got to reflect what has changed in healthcare writ, writ large and how we deliver healthcare. Over the last couple of decades, of course, probably the last 30 years, the number of small community hospitals that have gone out of business across the nation are quite considerable. We have moved more to outpatient care and we have moved more to sophisticated care requiring high technology for sick people. And, and for the military, of course, we have had a number of BRACs that have closed the small bases and diminished the active duty population in several areas. So the population is not as robust to sustain a full inpatient facility. So all of these factors plus others are coming into play. So where I see things going is we can, number one, let me state again for the record, we need a military health system, a direct care system, not only to take care of active duty folks and their beneficiary, but because that re reflects platforms that are important to the national security strategy and ensuring that we're successful in any mission down the road, particularly near peer conflict. So we need direct care system. And I want to state that if emphatically. Having said that, we need to develop a tightly integrated system, and we can actually understand what the important nodes are that supports graduate medical education, support of the active duty population and beneficiaries, and uh, supports potential large-scale operations in a, in a near-peer event. As such, we, we can understand where probably personnel need to go, which will allow them to maintain their skills. And this is across the entire provider pool. We can understand where we need to put the advanced technology. And in a true future state of an integrated health system, we know how to link other places through digital platforms to provide more sophisticated care at other campus and stations where 
maybe the population is not as robust and connect with the civilian sector to ensure that the military is served very well in terms of being able to receive uh, sophisticated care. So the imperatives in healthcare have changed and we need to recognize that that's a shifting environment that the military has to respond to. We've, we've got to make sure we train our personnel and we generate that the ready medical force so important to supporting the national defense. And we need to be a posture to, to prepare for whatever might come tomorrow. You recently retired at the rank of Major General and were honored to serve as the commander of the U.S. Army Reserve Medical Command. What were the most pressing concerns and challenges you faced in commanding the medical reserve component of the U.S. Army? Yeah, again, great question. And I think it, it relates to some of the other things we've been talking about, which is the constant change in the healthcare environment and what we need to do to be ready to support the national defense and national military strategy. So one of the big things I worked on in AR Medcom was ensuring that we upgraded and modernized our major exercise platform, which we call Global Medic, to reflect the potential fight of t- tomorrow and being able to synchronize units and across services and within the Army Reserve so that we could actually train and validate that ready medical force. And again, remember, as I conceptualize it, it's about beginning with soldiers who have the right medical and military skills, putting them into units of action, making sure that that unit can be validated against against their mission essential task list, and then being able to organize them to a particular operation. So we needed to modernize that platform. And then the second thing was to ensure that we were developing a strategy to support what was the transformation that was going on in the military health system, where we needed to put some of our, what we call TDA forces, forces that were aligned against sort of fixed structures and position them to support the active component, as well as the readiness of the reserve component and give flexibility to MTF so that the personnel could go train and do other readiness requirements. So we spent a lot of time on what we call Campaign 2028. And the, the, the reason we called it that was because it reflected a synchronization with the Army's modernization effort where they were looking at modernizing by 2030-2035 with a waypoint in 2028. So over your career in the military and the federal government, what was the best leadership advice that you've ever gotten? And what would you tell somebody or what would you advise somebody who wanted to know how to be an effective leader? Yeah. So I think the best leadership advice I've gotten is to be a servant leader. And the definition of a servant leader is that that leader creates the conditions within an organization so that everybody can achieve their potential and can contribute and you maximize the ability of the organization to meet the mission success. And so that has stuck with me. And in every position I've had as a senior leader, that is my job to serve others in the ultimate support of mission success, creating those conditions where we can capitalize on all of our human resources, our financial resources, our equipment to achieve success. So I think that's really very, very important. And that's what I try and do as I 
mentor junior officers and senior leaders is to try and get them to break out of more parochial ways of thinking that we grow up with. We're a doc, we're a med and understand the broader set of issues in play so that they can serve as strategic leaders to help integrate a lot of different issues in this volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world we live in to provide advice to senior leaders who have got the tough the tough position of weighing risk and developing these plans for defending this nation. So I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of the way I, I think about it. Well, the current phase of your career is very exciting because it blends the academic, military, and governmental service that you've had and sort of melds it all into one position, which is the president of the Uniformed Services University. Your candidate presentation was entitled The Future of USU and Health Professions Education and What Opportunities and Challenges Are Envisioned. How would you summarize your observations in this presentation? Yeah, so number one, I got one great job. That's not, that's really truthful. I mean, so if you think about the other things I've done, I was always balancing a lot of different activities at one time. And now everything has really come together. So I think you're exactly right, your description. The challenges, and I put it that way because with the challenges come opportunities, are to, A, number one, ensure that we are evolving the programs and pedagogy to ensure that our students graduate and they are relevant to the future. So, as I mentioned, much is changing in healthcare. And post-pandemic, we've accelerated the sort of the digital transformation of society, and that's affecting healthcare as well. So what is it we need to do to ensure that our student leaders are going to be set to manage the transformation, the additional transformation that's going to occur? And as I like to say, go out and be captains of the industry, whether or not they're, they become senior strategic leaders in the military, or eventually if they transition to the, the private sector, take that rich experience and training they have and become the thought leaders, the change makers within civil society going forward. We've got to be able to understand new domains of research that we need to get into. Again, not only focused on this the digital transformation, but understanding that there's a wide array of technologies that should advance our strategy for health and healthcare uh, to produce healthier populations and to recover individuals from injuries. We've got to be military focused to ensure that we understand what our unique place is in the military health system and in the Department of Defense as a resource. So we have many centers like the Global Health Engagement Center, that should be the go-to resource for DOD elements, combatant commands, to help think about how we exercise that instrument of the national power going forward. So there are, are challenges, but I would say this, that USU is solid and in a good place. It's about making sure that we don't rest on our laurels that we are, in fact, constantly forcing ourselves to advance so that we are the nation's leader for producing healthcare professions, strategic leaders going forward. So for those of us who've been around for a while, we know that, that USU's been on the congressional chopping block several times in the past. How do you go about showing the value added and uniqueness of USU to keep that above the cut line in tight budgets that are forthcoming? Yeah, good question. Communicate, communicate, communicate. 
so that it's very easy to be excellent and silent, but that doesn't others understand your value. So I consider that one of my big jobs. I think though today, USU has shown so much value and more people know that I'm less concerned about people turning to us and say, we can save money there because the truth of the matter is the services through recruiting can't generate the medical force that's necessary in USU and particularly ensuring that they've got the strategic leaders that are going to be there for uh, for career. I think we've done some other things that have increased our value. When I was at BASD and on the board, we developed the College of Allied Health Sciences, which looks at the training and the education that all of our great enlisted medical folks receive on um, tracks those college credits. And now uh, we award degrees on the completion of uh, several of the programs. But more importantly, we've divine uh, for these young, talented Americans pathway to spectacular careers, whether they remain in the service or they transition uh, to uh, civilian life. And this has uh, proven to be one of the most popular uh, programs because it speaks to the added value of the military service, and it is uh, cost efficient, basically. So we're uh, very proud to to be part of that initiative that adds value to uh, service uh, to to this nation. And then many of our, our research programs, which uh, are just too numerous to get into are really at the cutting edge of how we are going to save lives and advance uh, technology that solves some of the medical problems on the battlefield. Just today, I was up reviewing uh, what we call the 4D bio, bio printing research program. Holy mackerel, is that spectacular and it's that cutting edge and uh, the uh, way of the future. So there are many, many more aspects to USU that I think folks are going to understand, but communicate, communicate, communicate to make sure people understand who we are, what we do in support of the mission of the Department of Defense. One of the things that we're seeing in the news recently is a problem in recruiting folks for the, the services. And... I know that USUS doesn't have a problem. They have a lot of applicants for the number of positions that they offer, just like the service academies. But when I joined the Army, I came through ROTC. And, and one of the options after graduating from college was to go in the reserves. With your experience in the reserves and now at USUS, do you see any ways of having scholarship programs like HPSB producing a reserve military physician? So I think you're right. I think we need to think about novel approaches. And what you've described is one of the proposals that have been made. We have to work through the details and make sure we don't disincentivize the folks from coming on active duty. But I, I do believe, as you're suggesting, that we've got to think about a number of different ways of recruiting and retaining. Just some interesting facts that you may not be aware of. Right now in higher education, they're seeing certain challenges emerging because about 1.3 million students who would normally be in college have disenrolled through the pandemic. They're not likely to come back. And there's a lot of factors contributing to that. The young population is growing smaller. We're well past the baby boomers and the large families. So there isn't that population that is really coming into college level training. In addition, many industries are recruiting directly to high, from high school, particularly the tech industries, where they're recruiting and training folks, uh, sidestepping the college route. 
What I'm saying is that recruiting and retaining for the services is going to probably be a challenge going forward, but it's going to be really a challenge on the professional level, particularly in some professions where they come out with high debt. So we need to be thinking about novel ways of recruiting and retaining. In theory, we might even think about what I call part-time active duty. And again, this is Woodson speaking kind of in the theoretical frame where in fact we have an individual who is a high-end specialist who works at a busy civilian hospital. And we go to that person and say, you join the reserves and write a contract where 40% of your time you're going to be with the military. That becomes a reliable force every year where 40% of that time of that specialist time we can use in various assignments, deployments, whether it's to provide relief for an active duty person and an MTF or whether it's a deployment or, or whatever it is. But we know that every year, 40% of that specialist time is going to be in service to the nation. And the other 60% of the time, they're going to be in their community civilian-based practice where they're getting sets of reps and maintaining clearly their skills. The point I'm making, again, that's a theoretical new construct is that we have got to advance our thinking about how to recruit and retain because the world has changed and we have got to change with it. We just can't rely on post-World War II frameworks or how post-Vietnam frameworks for how we recruit and retain particularly high-end health professionals. One of the audiences that we have for the podcast and actually got an email today from a student who's applying to Ushus and saying how helpful listening to folks who've been in military medicine and and the experiences that Ushus are for them. So I think this is going to be something that is, is number one, popular, but very helpful to the folks that are considering military medicine as a career. Well, absolutely. One of the things we didn't emphasize, but is very important, is this issue of making individuals understand what a dynamic career it is. So you could be a doc or a nurse and in a civilian practice, and you can make a contribution to humanity. There's no doubt about it. But being a military doctor or a military health professional of various stripes, nurse, you are working in a different type of environment in which you can make tremendous contributions, not only with your skills, but as a leader, as an ambassador overseas, and support the nation when it needs it most because we're defending our values and we're defending our interests. So it's, it's what we need to do is advertise it as a special career. It's not just being a doctor or a nurse. It's about being that military medical health professional, which has a career trajectory unlike any others. Many of us are faculty for the Uniformed Services University, and I'd like to know what advice would you give a military medical provider interested in being the best possible clinician and educator, and how about those who are interested in doing executive medicine at the strategic level? Are you able to succeed at both? So I think one of the interesting things about being a military physician in particular by military medical profession is the number of different opportunities and pathways you can take. Uniform Services University, and I will say this unabashedly, has one of the best health professions education program, meaning people who are dedicated to learning how to teach and teaching others how to teach. So we've got a great faculty development program that is delivered both at USU, but also in a distributed fashion, understanding our faculty 
is spread out across the country and even over overseas. So I say that because as a faculty member, you could take advantage of this in your home station. You can even sign up to get a master's degree in health professions education and grow your career along those lines if you so desire. If you want to do research, we're going to try and increase the number of opportunities for faculty to do a various research, whether it's clinical or, or otherwise. So we have that opportunity of developing people in accordance with their goals. Faculty are extraordinarily important to having a strong military health system because the faculty are what are helping develop our students of their skills, knowledge, and abilities, their leadership concepts as they're distributed across our MTF platform. And I say this not only for our MD graduate programs, but also for our superb nursing graduate program. So right now, 50% of nurses and doctor, doctors of nursing professionals are, are grown at uniform services. So, and then we have our psychology programs and health administrator, et cetera. So there's an opportunity for individuals of various health profession stripes to connect with us to increase their capabilities and advance their careers. If you and I were to sit down together, being that we're both vascular surgeons who've worked in trauma centers, have deployed, undoubtedly, you would tell me a story of a clinical case that you encountered during your career. Can you share one of those stories with me now? Yeah, yeah. So I, I have many, probably at this point in my career, just really sunset at the clinical aspect. But the issue is that I'll give you one from deployment. Oh, I have one young soldier in a tank moving along, hit by an IED, and a piece of shrapnel actually embedded in his popliteal fossa and severed his popliteal artery. And we did a reconstruction bypass at that time. We were roll three at that point, so it was not an issue of of doing it at a roll two, but did a reconstruction, did the fasciotomies and, and the like. And so that's one of those bread and butter vascular cases that, you know, we've done many times in the civilian sector, but applied those skills and techniques to the wartime environment. What's interesting about that story that people may not appreciate that don't do vascular surgery is some of the toughest case stories actually come from injuries that occur in the popliteal fossa. And so yeah, it's and so that is a challenging case. And so people that are listening may not actually recognize that that is a very challenging location in the human body, even though it's the behind the knee, but it's a very challenging location in the human body to take care of a patient for trauma. That's absolutely. Particularly when you're dealing with other associated injuries, there's that time factor. The patients don't get to you in five minutes. So you're working behind the curve. So challenging, but all, all too rewarding, not only for the individual, but the highlights of a career. Yeah. So I would undoubtedly ask you to tell me another story. So if, if you can share one more with us, that would be great. Yeah. So I remember taking care of a soldier who had been the victim of an IED. And at first, and this was early in the war, so we hadn't worked out all of our strategy of damage control, surgery, and the like. I remember coming in and initially looked at um, bilateral lower extremity amputations, amputation of a hand, abdominal trauma, head trauma. The constellation of injuries were such that everyone was important. But you go back to your basic training and number one, stop the bleeding. 
we had done some work with open abdomens in Boston. And so I was familiar with that. And so we did the damage control surgery in, in the abdomen. We had challenges in terms of blunt injury to the chest and some blast effect on the lungs, but we're able to maintain appropriate ventilation and oxygenation following intubation. And then the real question was, okay, how severe was his closed head injury and whether or not that needed to be decompressed. And that was the part that was a little bit outside of my skill set. But we had uh, some superb neurosurgery backup that uh, supported our general care. And then it was about literally staying up all night with the, with the individual, ensuring uh, moment by moment that we were seeing what was going on, literally sleeping right there in the room for the five minutes or so. And it was the entire team of individuals pulling together this superb nurses that were there that had great expertise and the medics. And, and those kinds of cases are, are memorable, not only for the complexity of the injuries, but also the incredible teamwork goes on in order to save lives. And so that's very memorable. When your great-great-grandchildren are reading the history books about military medicine 100 years from now, what would you want them to read about your legacy yeah, well, you're, very, you're being very kind because you're presuming that there'll even be a footnote about what I did. But one, if, if, if there was a paragraph, it would be that I helped transform the military health system so that it was better, stronger, and more relevant to the future. We've been speaking with Dr. Jonathan Woodson on WarDocs. Sir, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on WarDocs. And thank you for your service to the nation. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team War Docs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's WarDocsPodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.